Well, this is Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Year, and I am Jim Grant. And I was about to say with me, as always, is the great Deputy Editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. But Evan is off typing, which is what we do for a living around here. We've got uh, another issue of Grants coming up. But today, I am not alone, and with me is uh, Scott Matthews. Happens to be a recent MBA class of 2021 at the Anderson School at uh, UCLA. Before that, an alumnus at Davidson College. Before that, a fellow who came up through the ranks in private equity, who did some real estate, and now who is in a real live operating business. The business is called Hygiena. It's in uh, California. And um, Scott is the vice president for global operations and functionally is the number two operating officer, all of which has occurred by the age of 31. And uh, it's not, I don't go around looking for interesting people. They come to me at wedding receptions. (laughs) I was um, at the wedding of uh, Harrison Waddill, who uh, is the chief operating officer, not none of this co-effective you know, chief. He is the chief operating officer at Grand Interest Rate Observer. And um, I sidled up to the bar, and there was Scott A. Matthews, um, and we fell to discussing, discussing Scott's uh, career, what he does for a living. And I said, Scott, you should come on Current Yield to tell our listeners what you can learn about running a business by actually being inside it rather than by studying it through uh, you know SEC issued documents, so um, that was the uh, that was the proposition. And uh, uh, on reflection, Scott said he wouldn't mind that. So here he is today. So Scott, welcome to you. Thank you, thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. And, and most importantly for Harrison Waddell, he's just a great friend. So he could be the, the chief operating officer of Grants, but he is a, a recent <laughs> new husband and and just a great friend, all around A plus guy. Well, he is an A plus chief operating officer at Grants Interest Rate Observer. Now. I would uh, so to to and this, there's so much to uh, discuss with respect to uh, hygiene and your place in it and your career, but I want to focus this on our listeners uh, who don't run or help to run an operating business, and they do their best to uh, uh, conduct due diligence by reading the 10 Qs, the 10K, by perhaps visiting management, uh, by talking to the competition, by engaging. Um, experts uh, who are on call to discuss various industries, but they can only know so much. So um, this is going to be a very broad and inviting question, but I'm going to ask you, Scott, to name one thing that uh, you have discovered that you know from inside a business that nobody, no matter how diligent as an outside public investor, can hope to know. Is there one thing that jumps to mind that is uh, perhaps a, a key to the knowledge of a business that only the insiders will ever no. Well, sure. I think, Jim, it, it, it's such a broad question, but I would start by focusing on the people. Uh, and the people are, are, are so important, and that's just ever more apparent uh, in, in this day and age that we seem to be in is with the tight labor market. Yeah. Um, having great people, and I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, it's much easier to get from the inside from, a, from an HR system, but it is so possible to figure out the tenure of the key people from public sources from LinkedIn uh, to Glassdoor, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily proprietary. It's it's much easier to get the data from the source directly. But if you were looking at a business conducting your operational due diligence and you wanted to understand the stability and core of the business and you do so by looking at the tenure of the people who've been along on the journey, I think that it really comes down to a great business is going to have and retain 
great people. Yeah. I was just going to say, and then from there, study what they do, right? Don't necessarily believe everything that is said, uh, you know, in those 10Ks, 10Qs, because that, that's oftentimes, I think, uh, filled up with marketing information. Yeah. Well, hi, Gina, we should, we should to, to, uh, to place you and your career in the context of this mm-hmm. business, we should know what you do for a living. So hi, Gina is, uh, is like in the clean business, right? And clean suddenly is a very big thing. So uh, tell us briefly what, uh, what this company does and uh, how it got to be where it is, what sure. the immediate future looks like. Sure, sure. So Agina, it, it's just such an exciting business. We're a life science business. As you said, we're in the business of testing for clean. Founded in 2002 by family. Um, it was a family business up till 2016 when we sold to Warburg Pincus uh, and just had such a great run um, under the Warburg Pincus ownership. They really are great investment partners. Up until March of this year when we sold into a, a German conglomerate called the EW Group. And uh, Hygiena along the way has, has grown exponentially. Um, and become a real a real multinational business. We produce uh, tests across a range of uses you know, that tell you whether or not uh, surfaces or products are are clean and healthy to consume, or environments are clean and healthy to participate in. So, an environmental monitoring test, testing for microbial activity in a surgery room, uh, is critically important to the success of uh, healthcare. Same uh, when you're testing for microbes in a food co-packer or on an airplane or contamination in protein or in dairy products. Uh, There is a lot out there to be tested and to verify, and uh, we're really excited to to be a part of a business that uh, is selling an apple pie and ice cream product that people need uh, to be healthy. Benjamin Graham said that when he was uh, thinking about uh, investing a business, he would imagine himself uh, looking at a closely held business you know, uh, kind of a, a standard Main Street uh, kind of business. And he would say, what's the first thing that uh, one should look at? And he would answer his own question saying, say, the balance sheet. Now, the balance sheet is, is, uh, is of course, available at a glance at documents. But um, uh, the notion of approaching a business as if it were uh, your own and not uh, necessarily a cork on the sea of uh, a speculative market, you know, one of the things I noticed about your CV side is that you have uh, led the, uh, uh, the due diligence in a number of your acquisitions. You've made several at uh, Hygiene over the past several years. Um, mm-hmm. How do you go about uh, kicking tires on closely held businesses, and how does that perhaps inform the way you read the news about uh, publicly listed equities? What is the secret sure. to making a good investment in a business that is not listed in an exchange? Well, I think that, Jim, that you, the first thing you said is a very finance-driven, finance-prioritized view of looking at a business, which is to look at the balance sheet. And I would never say that that is not a good first stop. But I do know that as Hygiena looks at acquisitions and, 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 and the ones we've done in the past, there's obviously a financial metric to that and, and the, how we're going to earn a return on our money. But the first thing that I would look at, that I do look at, is the compatibility of the product. And is it complementary to our product range and our, our customer base? And can we be strategic in the way that we are making investments in products, in great products, that will be complementary to our customers? And I think that just carries huge value. And if it's, if it's a good product and, a, and, and we can drive some synergies in our customer base, then 
will make it a, a worthwhile investment. And there's a, an easy or very natural investment hypothesis that goes into it. But I think to start by looking at the balance sheet, yes, I totally grant the the, the, the first screen being financial, but you know we're so excited about the products that we make. And what uh, what what what, uh, what surprises have you come across in your acquisitions? Where is one likely to be surprised? I ask this not so much for the literal application to making acquisitions of closely held businesses, but um, again to 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 bring it to the um, uh, to the worldview of the investor in public securities. Uh, what uh, you must do a, a in-depth uh, uh, due diligence on these acquisitions. What kind of things have surprised you even after all of that? And how do those lessons inform the next set of acquisitions you make? Well, I think it's a great question. It goes even back into my, my consulting days with A&M uh, and A&M being historically uh, a participant in Harry's situation uh, is uh, even when we're making great products, there is so much work to be done in the upkeep and back office to to sustain, grow, improve, uh, and drive cost efficiencies um, in this work. And so, you know, there's obviously cleanup that that, that is done and, and work that is done to improve uh, the product base. And, and that's always one of the unknowns that quickly becomes known. Uh, no one opens the kimono fully, I think, in, in diligence. Um, but I think that there is oftentimes in diligence a ton of focus on the CEO and the CFO. But in my experience in rising through the ranks, uh, as, as I've tried to do, is there should be more focus on the next layer of management, the, the COO, the CIO, uh, the, the R&D pipeline, and how do companies execute, uh, A, on their plan, and B, uh, the abil- what are the abilities of that next layer of management? Because those are the, are the folks on the team who are going to uh, help make an investment successful. And you would have no way of knowing that, you know, by watching the Bloomberg terminal or reading a 10K, 10Q. Uh, that's something that you can find out through uh, thorough investigations through, you know, a lot of it is shockingly readily available on LinkedIn. You know, um, one of the features of this present-day market, a hugely speculative market, uh, talking about the public market now, of course, mm-hmm. is that uh, execution seems to be not terribly important uh, in comparison to the narrative and the press release. Uh, you know, Avis up uh, 100% one hour and uh, Hertz down 100% one hour because not down 100%, but uh, these are immense moves on these two companies to pick only two on the basis of yeah. narrative and press release. And uh, one of the things that uh, differentiates the world of closely held operations is that you don't get a multiple, right? What you earn is is what comes to the bottom line. You don't get an option on the market's judgment of the multiple that that particular set of earnings ought to be assigned. Does that does that make a difference in the way you go about planning for the future and the way you invest? Jim, I don't know it's a fair characterization because although we're not traded on the public markets, we certainly are responsible to our private equity investors, and they certainly think about multiple, and they certainly think about the value that we're creating in our in our EBITDA cash flows. And uh, we are ultimately accountable for them to them. And so where, you know, Avis and Hertz and, and Apple and Tesla are, are offering 10Ks and 10Qs to the public markets, we're offering quarterly board meetings uh, and report outs on our progress and our financial performance to our private investor. And multiple, I would agree the they're, looking at the same, yeah. they're looking at the same things. Right. The multiples they assign, though, are for the time being are private. theoretical. Uh, That's right. Than, yeah. Um, 
uh, well, uh, the good thing about that is they're non-taxable. <laughs> Joe Biden can't come and tax the hypothetical multiples that uh, you would assign if you were – anyway. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, – about uh, about your MBA. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people listening, and I think, either are themselves at a stage in their careers where they think about that or know somebody who is weighing that decision. And uh, uh, what about it? Uh, you finished last year. Would you do it again? You know, I would. Um, I would, I, and I would even through uh, even through COVID. And, and uh, first off, the Anderson School, what a great place uh, to be. And, and I would just highly recommend it. And they're going to thank me for saying that, I hope. Uh, but um, you know, I went to business school in an interesting time in an interesting place. I, I came to California. I was 28 years old, I think, and and uh, and I'm now just starting uh, year three uh, out here. And it was a great adventure. Uh, I was in New York uh, for for the seven years we, uh, after college, and and traveled all over with Alvarez, and and I found this portfolio company that I loved working for, and I fell in love with this management team. It's such a great group, and. I took a flyer and I said, we'll have a great adventure. Uh, I'll move to California. We'll take it through the sale of the business with Warburg and, and then see what happens next. And one of the, the great ideas, one of the, the instruments of the success of this great adventure was to, to go to business school. Uh, if for no other reason, then I thought it would be just a great place to make some friends and, and that happened. But more than that, you're, and I did the part-time program, which was really interesting. I worked at Hygiena and, and had a day job while going to school on, on nights and weekends. And you, what I loved about that is you were able to go to school at night and have a great class on, you know, uh, beyond the, the standard accounting and organizational behavior. We had great classes on, on leadership and, and how COVID was impacting businesses and supply chains, how, you know, value and ethics and management and then come back and apply it to work, whether it was Friday morning after the Thursday night class or, or Monday morning after the, the all-day Saturday uh, on the campus down in Westwood. Tell me about um, – tell us about uh, uh, supply chains and about the, uh, the persistence or the transitoriness of inflation. So let's begin with um, – with uh, I don't know, with, with labor costs in your neck of the woods in California, what are you seeing? Is there difficulty getting help at whatever level? There is difficulty getting help at at every level. I think there there are articles every day on the tight labor market that this is a, a job seekers market, um, and I don't think that is uh, localized just to Ventura County here. I think that is everywhere, um, and, and we see it absolutely. I, I think everybody sees it. Um, it comes in a couple ways. Um, there are competitors that come up. Amazon just opened a, a warehouse down the street, um, but also in in Europe, um, they're hiring just a ton of people and paying good money, uh, good stimulus dollar money for uh, for technicians to process COVID tests, and that's taken a lot of uh, a lot of the slack in the labor market, those are our folks that we would like to hire uh, and absorb them at whatever cost uh, to to make sure that we're we're getting through uh, the current situation. And uh, absolutely, that that is that applies a pressure to to our business and, and our neighbors up and down the street. That sounds like a margin uh, a compressing problem too. Uh, it, it absolutely is, and. and uh, I can't imagine we're the only ones, and, and I think that it contributes uh, to the inflation side. 
you know, in the form of price increases. And, and we see price increases and offer price increases to make sure that we're maintaining the historical margins that we've always had. Scott, you, you often hear people yeah. say that um, uh, that the plaint, um, we can't get help, only means that mm -hmm. you are not paying enough for the help. Now, yeah. you find that uh, at a reasonable bump up in wage or salary that you can uh, find people and retain them, or is it a case of simply no people, people available, no qualified people available at a reasonable salary or wage. Jim, did you see the article, uh, it must have been now two months ago, maybe two and a half in the journal, uh, about the number of job seekers for every opening oh, sure, uh, yeah. in the United States? I think 20 years ago they said there were seven job seekers for every job opening, uh, and today there is one job seeker for every job opening. Um, and it's not just our business. I went out to dinner last night, and there's a, a help wanted sign, and, and drive through Westlake Village, California, and and it's it's just permeated everywhere. And to what I said to what I said before, there's it's a really exciting thing. There's there's new investment, new companies coming into our community, and they're taking uh, they're 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 taking the people. And and absolutely, there is wage competition to get the best employees. And you know, there's it, it's not about the money, but it's about the money. We're we're paying. I always think that too. I I always think it's about the money. Tell me about uh, uh, this. Uh, help help us to understand this. Yeah, uh, the, the duel between transitory and persistent. No one, of course, can see very far into the future. No, no weather app can tell us more than like uh, six hours of the future. But tell me about your experience with your supply chains and whether this seems to be something that is going to go away, or whether you perceive it to be perhaps longer lived. Well, I think. I think and I assume lots of other industrial businesses would agree that, that just when we thought we were over the curve uh, before the Delta variant came, uh, folks were relaxing uh, over the summer. And then, of course, we got the Delta variant. And uh, now my, my perception is that, that nobody's quite sure when, when supply chains will normalize. And, and what I've found really interesting is how the problem is manifesting itself. It started with toilet paper and Clorox. And uh, and has progressively moved uh, through different spikes in uh, in the market, and it's it's not just consumer goods. Uh, our operation in London, uh, not three weeks ago, uh, we had team members impacted by the petrol shortage, uh, not because the UK didn't have enough petrol, but because they didn't have the drivers to get it to the gas station. Um, and so, I'm curious what, what what you found, but it feels to me a bit like a moving target. And so the nice thing on the industrial side is you've got the confluence of shortages with cheap money. And so as an operator, I don't mind increasing our safety stock levels and investing in inventory in hopes that we can mitigate any future supply shock. I'm curious, uh, actually, I'll, I'll just straight up ask you uh, your research on increasing inventory levels as they correlate with uh, supply chain shocks and cheap money. Yeah. Well, one would expect that um, if this inflation were to persist, if this is something more than uh, Janet Yellen and J Jerome Powell's flash in the pan, that what we would be seeing is is uh, is at the margin borrowing uh, from banks to finance inventories in the move from uh, just in time to just in case. Right. We we have had uh, many years of the most uh, kind of balletic coordination. Uh, uh, in the just-in-time way, not uh, a moment of waste, not a dollar expended unnecessarily on the 
incremental uh, unit of, of, uh, of inventory stock. So with the various shocks and with the anxieties about the future of international trade and with the developing tensions in China, people are, I think, rethinking this and just perhaps, just as you said, are um, in, in, in more cases that we know are laying in the marginal unit of goods. What you don't see is that uh, Evident is that uh, that uh, decision that appears to be widely taken. We, you don't see it reflected in the in uh, the borrowing levels, at least not in bank borrowing levels. There is there is a, there's no uptake in uh, in uh, what they call commercial and industrial lending. That to me is a little bit of a puzzle. That, that's such a paradox because the the approach I would I would take is you know there's the the opportunity cost of having too much inventory, but has anyone considered the cost of not having the inventory? And, and, and having a full business, full business shutdown, and, and isn't that what's happening with with microchips? Scott, what would you like to say that I haven't asked? We got to wrap this up. Yeah. Well, first off, just what fun to to be with you and, and join you in the podcast. You know, there's there's really an interesting thing that I did uh, with business school and uh, Anderson. Again, what a great school. And when I finished the program, they they gave you the option for the the, the master's thesis, and you can do a consulting project or start a company or, or manage a stock portfolio. And, uh, I, but I really had this unique experience being a young manager um, with Hygiena. And I approached the, the dean of the program and said, you know, I really have had this interesting experience being a, a young person leading a team and I want to write about it. And, and they said, fabulous idea, go for it. And so, you know, Jim, maybe the next time we talk, um, I think there's a really interesting story on on the transition of, of all these Wall Street analysts and associates uh, who reach a point where they reach that inflection point where they're either going to stick with it or they're going to go try their hand at something else. And uh, for me, I, I went to try my hand at something else and work in a portfolio company and, and have had such a unique experience learning about both how to operate a business, but but leadership, my, you know, learning about myself and, and growing in the experience. And there's some really neat uh findings that I wrote about in, in, in this master's thesis. I might turn it into a book or an article on the young manager's playbook. Ah, okay. Well, that is another. I, I expect that uh, Harrison is not going to have another wedding. I think that, uh, that that's one that is one and done on the weddings. But you and I will I hope have so. another pretext to get together, <laughs> and you can tell me about your um, your embryonic book. <clears throat> In the meantime, uh, Scott A. Matthews, age 31, if you please. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Vice President Global Operations at Hygiena LLC, and um, I don't know, I, something tells me, Scott, we'll be hearing more about you and from you. So thank you for being with us. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until the next time, this is uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Mm-hmm.